De la patrulla de Minos de California. Weather headlines for today, yes. Welcome to the Revenue Generator Podcast, an I Hear Everything production. In this podcast, you'll hear how industry leaders integrate sales, marketing, product, and customer success into a single business unit with a common goal of optimizing their revenue cycle. We'll unearth how innovators integrate data, technology, people, and processes to expedite demand generation and increase recurring revenue. Sit back, tune in, and get ready to meet a member of the Revenue Generation. Here's the host of the Revenue Generator podcast, the CMO of Lean Data, Doug Bell. Welcome to the Revenue Generator podcast, where we members of the Revenue Generation share solutions for how you can integrate your business to optimize revenue. I'm your host and the CMO of Lean Data, Doug Bell. And today we're going to discuss the theory of consumer action. Joining us is Jason Cormier, who is the CEO of Room 214, which is a growth studio that uses the coherence method across digital marketing efforts to help B2B and D2C companies grow. And today, Jason and I are going to start out our conversation with the Jobs to be Done framework. Okay, here's my conversation with Jason Cormier, the CEO at Room 214. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Doug, thanks so much. Pleasure to be here. Full disclosure, folks, Jason and I have worked together before. We're going to hear, I think, quite a bit about his organization. But Jason actually is one of our most trusted partners. And one of the things that attracted me to Room 214 and working with Jason was this idea of the jobs to be done framework. So I think it's a perfect circle here for us, Jason. And I'm really curious about really how you came upon this. And I'm going to ask you about a guy named Bob Moesta, but how you came upon this and then what is it and how did it inspire you? But talk to me about, and this is kind of a meet cute story on some level, right? Talk to me about bumping into this guy at a conference. Yeah, I mean, it was basically, uh, Bob was at a conference. He was talking about jobs to be done theory. This was several years ago and we just hadn't heard about it. And you know, kind of the godfather of jobs to be done theories, Clay Christensen, recently passed away, but a professor at Harvard University. He wrote The Innovator's Dilemma and a few other incredible books. But the whole concept of jobs to be done or jobs theory is that you and I hire and fire products all day long. And the reason we do that is because we're all trying to make progress in our lives. So this afternoon, for example, I might hire a cup of Starbucks coffee. The progress that I'm trying to make is I'm falling asleep at my desk. I need to wake up, right? And so this concept of hiring and firing products is a much different way of looking at marketing, especially when it comes to understanding customers. And so Bob Westa really talked about this in a way that it allowed us to realize, wow, there's an application here that's really specific for marketing. Now, traditionally, jobs theory was developed for product innovation. You know, how do I make a product better? But what we found is, gosh, if you turn it on its side a little bit, this is actually super relevant to deeply understanding customers. And what's interesting about that is all of us have been just so inundated with the importance of data when it comes to understanding customers, but data can fall short in many ways, right? So when we think of things like correlations, oftentimes data does not serve us well. Where data is frequently missing, a key insight is with respect to why customers buy. And when you really understand why customers buy, 
now you've got some tremendous advantages. In our world, for example, you know, we're in this world of marketing agencies. A lot of companies will come out and say, okay, I'm going to hire an agency because my expectation is they're creative. They've got experience. And so they're going to help me come up with campaigns. And to that, I would say, okay, yes, hopefully, you know, and maybe those are table stakes, but wouldn't it be nice if you didn't have to rely on that agency to just be so creative, to just, you know, have good experience. But instead, they said to you, we're going to understand your customer so deeply that anything that we speak of in terms of brand messaging, campaign ideas, web copy, whatever, it's not going to be our brilliant idea. It's going to come straight from your customer. And so the Jobs to be Done framework actually allows you to go through a pretty methodical process, at least the way that we, we use it. And yeah, I can talk about that today if you like. So Jobs to be Done theory effectively says that each product that somebody, and you brought up Starbucks, and I'm horrified to think that I would fire my Starbucks because I'm so dependent on it. But you know, there's this idea that every product is really about some utility and you make a determination on that utility, sometimes very consciously or unconsciously. Starbucks cup of coffee is an example. But help me understand how you translate that to something bigger. So the things that your clients tend to sell are obviously not $4.79 cup of latte from Starbucks, right? So how do you translate that out to, hey, a fundamental understanding of the hire and fire idea of the jobs theory? So one thing to, to understand up front is that the practice of jobs theory is an interview with a customer. And this gets into the area of usability. And what that means is that depending on what curve you're looking at from a statistical perspective, 15 customers has been considered kind of the sweet spot just from pure usability. So what's interesting is you can interview 15 customers, record the conversations, 45, 60 minutes on average, and that's enough to get what you need. Now, to answer your question, in terms of the utility piece, and this gets into the format of jobs theory, we look at it from a four-category perspective. So in other words, we'll talk to a customer and we're listening really closely so that we can put what they say into four different buckets to start anyway. So those buckets are, one of them is called push. And this is the idea of what internal forces are driving the need to get the job done. Why are other options not good enough? What are the emotional and practical reasons of why now is the time to act, right? So this could apply to, I need a cup of coffee, or it could apply to, wow, you know what? I've got to look into an enterprise SaaS platform to solve this freaking problem I've got. <laughs> so some external force is saying, you need to go do this. It's less choice. So I got pushed down. That makes sense to me. What's the next idea? Right. So beyond push, we get into pull. So pull is really the external influences that are enlightening a new way to get the job done, right? So these can be trusted recommendations. Oftentimes, early adopters or the quote-unquote cool factor can play into this. Really, it refers to a vision of what life could be like, right? And so there's the push side, but, you know, oftentimes you think of things like confirmation bias, you know? You start seeing things that appear in the ether and think, oh my gosh, this is, yes, this is the direction we need to go in. Now, beyond that, you have a habit. And again, remember, this is in the context of listening to somebody in a conversation. This is a very loosely formatted conversation. It's not like a scripted survey. And what's interesting about it, too, is that people remember things. They don't know what they remember until they start talking about it. 
And so all this stuff begins to come out uh, in these conversations. And you have to have a bit of finesse in a conversation like this because you have to just be quiet sometimes and allow the awkward pause to push that person to keep talking. Okay, so we've talked push-pull. Habit is refers to like the everyday routines performed in the lieu of the change that they want to make. And so it's business as usual. It's comfortable patterns that people have. It's the way we've always done it. And the reality is that it's what needs to be left behind in order to achieve progress. So we've got, I'm going to go back to coffee here for a second because you brought it up. All right. So we're going to go back to coffee. We've got push, which is I'm really tired. I was up late. I need my Starbucks. Pull is I show up at Starbucks and I go, I haven't had a pumpkin spice latte for a really long time. I wonder if they have any. And there it is on the board. That's pulling you in. The habit piece is I can't function unless I have my coffee every single day. Getting this right, Jason? I would say that's fair. I would say maybe another example of pull would be, let's say you're driving down the highway and you're using the Waze app. And next thing you know, hey, Starbucks, 1.2 miles away from you, you know, click here, here's a coupon, whatever, right? And so this is an external factor that's now influencing you, or you're on the phone with someone, let's just say, and they're like, oh, hang on a second, I got to get my coffee. Oh, there it is again. And so this can be from an influencer perspective, from an advertising perspective, you know, when you start thinking about marketing channels, this is where pull can be a very uh, highly relevant category. Okay. So we've got push, we've got pull, we've got habit. What's next? Finally, we get into anxiety. And this is a really important one because anxiety refers to the hangups, the fears, the skepticism that holds us back from acting to make a change right? So these are hurdles that may seem like uh, it's just too much to overcome. And anxiety shows up in all kinds of forms, little and small. So for example, let's stick with Starbucks. Maybe we'll get a promo for this, right? So anyway, (laughs) I walk into Starbucks, turns out they've got eight different specials going on today. Oh my gosh, I thought I knew I wanted a pumpkin latte or whatever, but now what about that special? And oh my gosh, I heard a friend talk about this one. Now all of a sudden I've been standing there for 10 minutes and I haven't ordered coffee yet. I'm anxious as hell. Maybe I just walk out, right? And so this applies to online shopping. It applies to, I mean, you name it, right? That push-pull habit and anxiety. And so in these conversations, we're really trying to get to the root of that. And what's really interesting, and this flies in the face of a lot of traditional marketing, is, you know, oftentimes as marketers, we're looking at things like obviously, you know, ideal customer profile. We're looking at things like personas or avatars and those things have their places, but those, those kinds of tools are definitely limited to things like demographics. You know, if I look at a particular persona, there's all these demographics, psychographics, et cetera. But when you, what's interesting is when you interview people in this jobs to be done process, those things don't play into this as much. What I mean by that is that there are really fascinating overlaps and the progress that people want to make in their lives, regardless of their background, their geography, et cetera. And I think that's why, A, it's super powerful, and B, we can get away with interviewing so few customers to get the kind of results that can actually make an impact. So I'm your typical revenue leader. I'm your typical marketing leader, and I'm hearing this, Jason. And I don't have the privilege of working with Room 214. I'm going to take your example of buyer personas, by the way. It's somewhat flat, right? It's based on pharmacographics and demographics, maybe a little bit of technographics in there as well. 
How does somebody go out and make that a less kind of flat persona, understanding their behavioral tendencies? Is it just a matter of getting 15 interviews in and having just a good idea of what to listen for? Or would you advise reaching out to a firm to get this done? Well, here's the thing. I, I feel like as an entrepreneur, we'd been in business probably 13 years before we came across this. You ultimately learn by doing, you know, so you can go try and do this yourself. <laughs> what you'll find, though, is that with practice, you get much better results. So for example, there's never just one person that's part of this process. Yeah, we'll record the conversations, but you know, we've got a scribe, we've got someone who's prompting to to listen for certain things that, you know, the interviewer, when you're actually guiding that conversation, it's really difficult to have this second piece that you're doing that's collecting all the data that really matters, right? And so even if you record the conversation and then go back then you don't really have somebody who's helping you, hey, ask them this, or, oh, hey, did you hear that? Or writing on a whiteboard, you know, while the interview is being conducted. So it's always recommended to have a third party. The other reason for that is if the customer knows you are with the company that they're talking about, they tend to want to be nicer about things. <laughs> right. And so a little bit of truth is hidden. Now, in that, what I'll just say is, you know, there's push-pull habit anxiety. There's a few other things that it's part of this framework as well. One is that we're listening for what are rivals. So you could just say rivals or competitors. And what are substitutes in lieu of making a change, right? So for example, if I use a glass of tea, for example, has been a substitute in, in, instead of coffee, right? It's really interesting to know that, by the way, because... When you hear about what substitutes are to a particular product or service, you know, you want your customer to buy, that can open up other insights with respect to what we call growth clusters. So we, you know, we live in a world where we say there's a core audience and then there's there are growth clusters. And these are edges of your core audience, and there's opportunities to market to them in a different way. And so we use substitutes really heavily to figure that out. The other thing that we do is we build a timeline. Now any good buyer's journey typically got a, a timeline associated with it, right? But the difference in the jobs to be done timelines that we build is that we will start with the point of purchase just to jog the memory and get them thinking, okay, you know, what did that look like? And by the way, we're asking funny questions. Like, do you remember what the weather was like that day? You know, if you were standing in line, you know, was someone with you when you purchased? And sometimes the reaction is like, why are you asking me this? All it is is to just jog the memory. Right. What ends up happening, though, is we go way back in time, trying to get to the initial thought that they may have had when this ever could have possibly occurred in their brain as something that they would someday buy or need. And what's interesting about this is sometimes this means going 10, 15 years back in someone's personal history. That's much different than just the first action in a buyer's journey. Right? It's the initial thought. The other fascinating thing about this is we get into what we call since then. And so since you purchased, since the decision was made, what's happened since then? And more specifically, we'll talk about things like, well, how did you hack the product or service? Because you, you, know, you wanted to make progress in life. So you bought the cup of coffee. Let's say maybe it wasn't all that you needed it to be. So then what did you do? You know, what, did you pair it with another product? 
You know, did you have to add creamer or you know, did you put a shot of something in there? So you, you get it, right? And so when you think about push-pull habit, anxiety, rivals, substitutes, a timeline from initial thought to first action, second action, decision, and since then, the amount of data that you have is truly impressive. And this kind of information, this can make an impact to brand and product messaging, as I said before, campaign and content ideas, sales materials, like right down to scripts that salespeople say. And of course, because this was developed for product innovation, it works for that too. Ad targeting and segmentation, I could go on and on. So Jason, it's really interesting. The language you're using feels very intentional. And what I mean by that is this, you're saying pull and push, right? You're saying basically that, you know, these are forces really beyond that person's understanding or control on some level, right? Externalities, in one case, or internalities in the other. In other words, I'm being pushed to do something. There's a crisis. I don't have a lot of choice in this. I'm being pulled in. There is incentive, if you will, right? That makes sense to me. But you also mentioned two things. I would say competition. You're saying rivals, right? And then you're saying substitutes. And I would also say competition. But is that intentional? In other words, getting people out of this mindset of, you know, what are like products or what are competing products? Is that the concept? I would say yes. Rivals and competitors, I could say, are somewhat interchangeable. The interesting thing about substitutes is a substitute does not refer to a competitor, right? It's making do. Yeah, exactly. That's a good way to look at it. How did you make do? You know, you didn't buy from my competitor, but you were doing something before you bought what I offered you. And what did that look like? What was the substitute in the meantime, you know, leading up to that point? So what's interesting about that is, you know, again, kind of thinking about some of the marketing 101 things of the world, and this even gets into areas of category leadership, the concept of marketing the problem, not your features and benefits, right? If you're really good at marketing the problem, well, this is something that a lot of category leaders are defined as. And so when you think about that in the context of substitutes, now you're onto something, right? Because the substitute is you're in the world of problems to the point where it gets so painful, you've finally got to do something. You're going to buy from me, you're going to buy from my competitor. But there's a lot of activity and insight that's happening while you're, you're in this world of substitutes. So Jason, we've learned a lot here. You know, the jobs to be done theory, ultimately, I feel like the ideas are pretty solid. And I think we're also recommending back to our audience here that go through the work, right? Don't just skip through and try and tackle this yourself. And quite often, you know, research firm or an agency can be really helpful. But what I'd love to do to wrap up this episode, Jason, is just talk about how companies would go about, say, attaching to this idea of pull. And we mentioned before Starbucks, go to the Starbucks. <laughs> There's a pumpkin spice latte. I hate those things, by the way. I'm not sure why I keep bringing them up. But You've got that pumpkin spice latte. What are some, so once people understand that pull, what kind of brings them in? And I can also think from a B2B standpoint, quite often that's peer settings, like peers going, I'm using this amazing software tool. Have you heard of this, right? How do marketers maybe take advantage of one slice of the jobs to be done theory? Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of the jobs theory is, the, the really important aspect of it is, and it's coincidental that you mentioned the word pull, because what we have found is that the insights need to be pulled through. And so what I mean by that is there's great research that you can you know, invest in. And a lot of times the organizations that you're making that investment in for that particular customer research, 
they may do a lot of similar processes of, and, and use similar frameworks in what I've talked about today. The problem is they will present a really nice deck. They'll get everybody really excited. They may have some top-level recommendations. And then that deck goes and sits in a drive or in a brand folder somewhere, and it's not actually pulled through, right? And so the most important thing is just that. You have to create what we call a pull-through plan. And that is how do you take these insights and actually bring them to life in various aspects of your marketing? And, and for us, this is where it gets into the coherence method, right? So the jobs to be done fits under the intelligence umbrella for us. From there, you're looking at currency. In our world, we call currency content. And so when you think about your content, you know, your brand, your messaging, your web copy, your email, your sales scripts, ads, so on and so forth, right? Campaign headlines and themes. All of this should be customer-centric because our theory is, and, and I think we've proven this quite well over the years, the more customer-centric the organization is, the more business value it has. We can get into specifics as you like. I don't know if that's specific enough. <laughs> well, I think we're going to tip over into our discussion for tomorrow, Jason. So I'm going to say, I think we've done a good job kind of setting up this idea of the coherence method. And we're going to leave a bit of a cliffhanger here. We're going to talk about this tomorrow, folks. Okay. That wraps up this episode of the Revenue Generator Podcast. Thanks to Jason Cormier, CEO of Room 214, for joining us today. In part two of this interview, which we'll publish tomorrow, Jason and I are going to discuss the coherence method. If you can't wait until our next episode and would like to learn more about Jason, you can find a link for his LinkedIn profile in our show notes, or you can contact him on Twitter where his handle is Jason Cormier, or visit his company website at room214.com. Just one more link in our show notes I want to tell you about. If you didn't have a chance to take notes while listening to this podcast, shame on you, head over to revgenpod.com. We have summaries of all of our episodes and contact information for our guests. You can subscribe to our weekly newsletter, apply to be a speaker on the Revenue Generator podcast, or you can sh even share your revenue generation questions, which we'll answer live on our show. Of course, you can always reach out on social media. Our handle is RevGenPod on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or you can contact me directly. My handle is Market Advocate. If you haven't subscribed yet and want a daily stream of RevGen strategies in your podcast feed, we're going to publish an episode every day during the work week. So hit that subscribe button in your podcast app, and we'll be back in your feed in the next business day. Okay, that's all for today. But until next time, keep cranking because the revenue isn't going to generate itself.